Hi, everyone. We are thrilled to have Glass Health as our sponsor. Let's hear from the co-founder and CEO of Glass Health, Dr. Derek Paul, talking about a situation we often find ourselves in. And what I was trying to do and what a lot of my co-residents were trying to do were develop systems to keep track of all of these new things. And so my email and like I've got some like podcast uh, show notes, but then I've got like Twitter bookmarks are full of tutorials, but they're not organized. And then I've like snapshot all of these different like chunk talks and I can't search any of it. And that was like, that was very frustrating because there's so much amazing content out there. So the concept with Glass was actually to create a knowledge management system. And some folks are already doing systems like this in Evernote, OneNote, Notion. Um, and, and you would see folks flip between many of them because none of them were exactly quite right. And so what we're trying to do with Glass is create a system that's really tailored to the physician. So that's kind of the idea was to really like help folks bring medical knowledge in one place have something that could grow with you over over your career. And one feature I really love about Glass is that there's this community page where you can see other clinicians' pages of Chuck Talks or notes they've organized on clinical topics that they've chosen to make public. And there's also a Glass Pro version that has really cool visualization features. If you want a one-month free access to Glass Pro, use the promo code Coriam at glass.health backslash Coriam. We'll also link it in our show notes. And with that, let's get into this really thought-provoking episode. Welcome to the Neff Madness Podcrawl. The idea behind a podcrawl is for a variety of podcasts to coordinate on timing and topic, to push a theme, and get each other's listeners to explore all of the podcasts. One of the very first goals behind Neff Madness was to build a community. And in the early years of Twitter, Neff Madness was central to the formation of Neff Twitter and defining the ethos that makes our online community kind, intelligent, vibrant, and interesting. The Neff Madness Podcrawl hopes to inspire and grow the nephrology podcast community in the same way. For 2023, our second year, Podcrawl has assembled the Avengers of medical podcasts. We have the Curbsiders, get the skinny on mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists. Core IM will be covering kidney transplant in their classic five pearl format. The Cardio Nerds will be covering the effect of heart failure devices on kidney health. Freely Filtered will try to understand thrombotic microangiopathy. ISN Global Kidney Care goes deep on IgA nephropathy. The Cribsiders look at transitions, first the pediatrics to adult nephrology transition, and then from living to death with palliative nephrology. And Fellow on Call will be covering onco-nephrology. And finally, the Nephron segment looks at transgender health and CKD. Eight podcasts, one for each region in this year's Neph Madness. Go to nephmadness.com slash podcrawl to get links to all of the shows. Thanks. So the role of the internal medicine doctor really, I would say, number one, is to be curious about what the patient has heard. Often when somebody comes to me for their very first 
transplant evaluation, I start with the question, when did you first hear that the kidney problem was so bad that you might end up either on dialysis or getting a transplant? And the answer is fascinating to me. You'll have somebody with a clear-cut decline over the past five years, and they were just told a month ago. And to me, that's somebody who is freshly processing this news and potentially in denial or, you know, just maybe doesn't even believe it. That's Dr. Martha Pavakis, a transplant nephrologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Welcome to Core AM, Five Pearls Podcast, bringing you high-yield evidence-based pearls. Today, we're going to be talking about the bean, specifically the new beans. That is transplant nephrology. I am Marty Freed. I'm an academic primary care doc here at The Ohio State University. And you know, Shrey, this episode's also worth pointing out that I'm the proud son of a kidney donor. Ah, I did not know that. Props to Mama Freed. No doubt it's Dr. Mama Freed who (laughs) saved the day when I was uh, 14 years old. I actually still remember the 24-hour urine collections. And and frankly, pre-adolescent Marty is still a little haunted by those uh, refrigerated pee jugs in our our fridge. I can imagine. (laughs) <laughs> but but Shrey, listen, I'm also super excited to introduce great friend, former resident, new friend of the pod, and master of the beans, Dr. Tomas Guerrero. Well, Marty, thank you for that amazing introduction. We love the urine jugs. It is my favorite part of, uh, of nephrology, really, I would have to say, is making those patients go through the uh, 24-hour <laughs> collection of urine. And yeah, everyone, my name is Tomas Guerrero. I'm a uh, private practice nephrologist, and I just recently graduated from the UNC Nephrology Fellowship. Uh, Tomas, we're so excited to have you here today. And just a heads up for the listeners, there will be a post-renal transplant episode coming up where we'll be talking all things immunosuppressive meds, complications, and much, much more. All right, let's get into the pearls we'll be talking about today. As you listen, quiz yourself by pausing after each of the five questions. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Pearl 1. Transplant versus dialysis. Why should we favor kidney transplants over dialysis? Pearl 2. Transplant eligibility and referral. Who is eligible for a kidney transplant and when should we start referring? Pearl 3, pre-transplant evaluation. What goes into the pre-transplant evaluation and how can we help in that process? Pearl 4, factors for transplant waiting time. How long do patients have to wait on the transplant list and what factors affect it? And Pearl 5, Living donation. How do living donor kidneys work and what are their risks? All right, Tomas, set us up here. We're doing a whole episode on renal transplant, but sell me on this. Why is this topic important? I mean, we we all know dialysis stinks, Mm -hmm. but it works. Everyone knows someone who's been on dialysis, especially us in the medical field. Marty, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that any patient that is eligible to receive a transplant definitely should. I would also say that there is quality of life for most people. The quality of life is better with a kidney transplant. Obviously, dialysis is very cumbersome. It's as far as as time that you have to give to dialysis and sort of you're limited in your ability to move about the world. Everyone, that's Dr. Karen True, a transplant nephrologist at UNC. 
And that totally makes sense. I mean, I've heard it frequently described as kind of gaining a new sort of freedom. Okay. So I guess the next natural question is, yeah, transplant gives you this freedom. You're not tied down to a dialysis center three times a week. But what about peritoneal dialysis? That kind of gives you some freedom too, right? You're not going to a dialysis center all the time. True. But the people on PD or peritoneal dialysis, no, they're dependent on a machine that's larger than your average printer. And that's not even considering the amount of fluid that they have to lug around. I mean, some of these people are using 15 liters of fluid in a single night. That's like 30 pounds. Do you imagine putting all of that into an RV? I mean, Tomas, it should be noted that I watch a pretty decent amount of Tiny House Nation, <laughs> and I know that you can put a whole lot into an RV, but it sounds like PD and travel is pretty much a no-go. I mean, you can travel. It's not impossible. It just takes extra coordination, and you will probably have a limited distance you can actually go. Yeah, it sounds like everything has its drawbacks. Yeah, even transplant has its drawbacks. I mean, you're taking a lot of new meds. You have to uh, monitor and control certain immunosuppression levels in your blood. And that means watching what you eat. It means frequent blood draws and uh, watching what concurrent medications you, you could be taking. You know, at the end of the day, you're, you're trading one hassle for another. But I have personally seen a substantial improvement in quality of life for a, a lot of these patients. We used to tell patients that the transplant would improve their quality of life but we didn't tell them it would improve their length of life because we didn't have that evidence. And around 20 years ago, we got really good evidence that is still true to this day, that with a kidney transplant compared to being on dialysis, you will live longer, despite the immune suppression, despite the increased risk of infections and certain kinds of cancers. Not only will you feel better, but you will live longer. So hands down, if you can get a transplant, you should get a transplant. So I would say there's really no question that the long-term benefits are there, but, and there's always a but, it does take some time to see that mortality benefit come to fruition, you know, for that investment to start really paying off. We have to remember that that improved mortality does not happen on day one of kidney transplant. I mean, they're having a surgery, they're in the hospital, they're getting massive medicines that suppress their immune system. So their mortality risk is much higher for quite a while. And it takes about 100-ish days or so before survival is equal to just staying on dialysis and about, for all comers, about 240-something days before you reach a mortality advantage to dialysis. So if you don't make it to day 240-whatever, we have not done you a favor by giving you a kidney transplant. But most people do make it to 244 days. So you guys know those 26.2 marathon bumper stickers? <laughs> I sort of think that we should have those stickers, but for kidney transplant, it's kind of like, listen here, I want everyone to know that I did it. 240 days. <laughs> Boom. Yeah, it's like a Let badge of honor. Known. Yeah, I, 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 I would <laughs> right. love that. If we could hand them out. I would, I would hand them out in clinic. Like, yeah, here you go. You get one. <laughs> like a next Oprah. Um, awesome. All right, let's summarize this very quick pearl on transplants versus dialysis. So yes, there is a hassle both with dialysis and with transplant. And with transplant, it is good to counsel our patients uh, upfront that there's going to be these immunosuppressive meds, blood work, appointments that we'll all get into later. But the big takeaway boils down to the fact that kidney transplants don't only offer a potential better quality of life, but also a mortality benefit. And what's not to love about that? All right, so it's pretty clear that we probably should be offering transplants to all patients who are eligible. Yeah, I feel that too now, but 
Honestly, I can't remember the last time I brought up kidney transplant with a patient. I'm often prepping patients like, oh, at some point, hey, we're going to need to start to think about vein mapping to get a fistula and to start dialysis and not even mentioning transplant as a branch point anywhere there. You know, Shrey, when you're right, you're right. <laughs> Thanks. As we were putting this episode together, I just felt like we were, I personally was had a lot of missed opportunities in clinic, like kind of watching my patient's kidney function like slowly deteriorate over years. And I probably could have been forecasting transplant a little instead of, you know, asking my main man Tomas here to do to do all the hard work in terms of talking about transplant. And Marty, that's why they pay us the big bucks. <laughs> But seriously, as nephrologists, we really do appreciate as many hands on deck to prep that conversation. I mean, as soon as dialysis comes up, transplant should be brought up as a potential option down the line, at least for the patients you think would make a good candidate. For the patient who is a clear-cut great candidate, let's say you're type 1 diabetic with, you know, rapidly declining GFR over the years, they're only in their 30s or 40s. You see it coming that they're going to end up on dialysis. Or the patient with PKD who really even has a family history of people ending up on dialysis. You know, There's lots of examples of, of clear-cut people who are heading that direction. What I would say is, I'm glad you're seeing a nephrologist for your kidney failure care. Have they brought up to you the possibility of eventually needing a transplant. What have you heard about transplant from your nephrologist? So if someone's GFR is declining fast down that CKD path, refer to transplant on the sooner side. But if someone has a slower progressing CKD, our expert transplant nephrologists and reviewers all had a bit of a different practice pattern, but the general thought is to bring up transplant at the same time you start talking about dialysis as a parallel option. And when we really press them for a GFR number cutoff, once that GFR hits less than 30, refer to transplant since it does take a bit of time to complete all that evaluation and you want your patients to try to get all that done before their GFR drops even more and hits a magic number of 20. So to be listed for kidney transplants, um, actively listed where we would actually consider offering somebody a kidney, they have to have a GFR of 20 or less. That doesn't mean that everyone with a GFR of 20 is ready to get a kidney transplant, but they can start accruing time on the waiting list at a GFR of 20 or less. There's a lot of, of steps to the evaluation, but it, you know, it can take three, six months to get all the testing done, you know, depending on how far people live from the transplant center. All of those things take time. And so it's not unreasonable to go ahead and refer someone for transplant when their GFR is in, you know, the mid to low 20s. Like we're not going to say we're not evaluating them. We don't want to start on the day that their GFR is 20 because we want to start their waiting time on the day their GFR hits 20. That totally makes sense because we really, really, really want to minimize the amount of time that these people are on dialysis of any kind. All that pre-transplant testing that Dr. True is referring to needs to happen before they're listed. So we want to have all our ducks in a row for that day that GFR hits 20. Somebody had an acute kidney injury episode five years ago and their GFR was 17 and then it improved. That 17 counts. So we can use historical GFR. It's a little bit of, of gaming the system, um, but it, it does count. Um, you know, you have to do that within your own ethical framework, obviously. Um, but if they've had something recent where it dipped and got a little bit better, we would certainly consider using that to list somebody. 
wait a minute, AKI counts? Are you serious? I kind of feel like I've been lied to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're not the only one. And really, any AKI accounts, as long as that GFR is under 20. Wild. So any GFR less than 20, even for a day, means they can start accruing time on that wait list. And I guess, honestly, it reiterates the point of referring early so that the patient can complete their whole evaluation process on the, on the sooner side. And now that I know a bit more about the mortality benefits of transplant, in an ideal world, I'd love to hype it up for patients as, as much as I can. But I'm curious, are there certain groups of patients that might get turned away from transplant? I'd say the most common reason people aren't candidates, at least not at first, are age and weight. There are different sort of age cutoffs for different centers. So there are some centers that have absolute age cutoffs, like we don't evaluate anyone over 70 or 75 or whatever the case may be. Um, We sort of look at older patients on a case-by-case basis. There's pretty good data that shows that in the 70s and even the 80s, if you choose the right patients, these patients still have a survival benefit versus staying on dialysis. So I don't want to say age and frailty are equal. They are not. So not all old people are frail and not all young people are unfrail. I had a patient who came to us for listing. I think he was 74 years old. And I mean, this guy wanted a kidney transplant so that he could get his pilot's license back because they didn't give you a pilot's license if you're on dialysis. So this is a very... He was, he's a pastor. He was still preaching, very active guy, you know, looked great. Didn't have a living donor though, but I continued to see him every year while he was on the waiting list. He continued to do well. And we gave him a deceased donor kidney at age 79. He is now 81 and he is flying his plane. Maybe he's up there right now. I don't know. I just love the idea of Dr. True's patients. Just listen to this podcast right now in the cockpit of his little Cessna twin engine. Uh, it just seems to me just like a great kind of, you know, victory redemption story. But <laughs> but anyway, age cutoffs seem to be center dependent and and from what it sounds like, sort of arbitrary. What are we thinking about BMI cutoffs? Much like age cutoffs, a lot of centers have cutoffs for maximum BMI to be actively listed on our kidney transplant waiting list. Um, to be able to get an organ offer. And our BMI cutoff here at UNC is 40 or less. We prefer a BMI of 35 or less because there is some data that shows that the wound complications are higher, particularly in for BMI above 35, particularly for diabetics. When a kidney doesn't work right away, we call that delayed graft function. And that's Patients who have a higher BMI are at a a higher risk of that because of the physically having to get the kidney in takes longer in somebody with a higher BMI. So they're more likely to have what we call delayed rat function, which can reduce the the life of the transplant down the road. Oh, okay. I really appreciate knowing the context of where that BMI cutoff comes from. Yeah, but we should always remember that we should not get caught up in the numbers. And I'm saying that as a nephrologist. Like, I love yeah. numbers. <laughs> but personally, I try to be pretty aggressive about who I refer for evaluation because the last thing I would want is for someone not to start accumulating waiting time when they could have been just because I didn't send them. Or worse, for me to have incorporated some unconscious bias that prevented me from referring them in the first place. You know, anytime. There's triaging and prioritizing. There's always the risk of bias creeping in. 
So I'm always um, a little leery of saying only send us people that you think would be good transplant candidates because that is a very vague and subjective thing. So my biggest um, caveat for people not being referred for transplant is somebody you don't think is going to live five years because of their other health issues. Um, somebody in the extremes of old age, frailty, dementia. I think only those extremes that I would say do not think about transplant referral for that person. And really, rather than put this on the internists and the nephrologists, I personally would prefer that those referrals came in. And what happens is the nurse coordinators screen all the referrals, and then they put the ones that they think are questionable on my desk, and I sort through them. This is a very typical um, non-billable hour function of the medical director of kidney transplant is to um, make sure that we're evaluating all the people we should and then some. So when there are questions, refer away. It sounds like these transplant centers have a whole process in place to screen and multiple layers to weed out any biases that might creep in. So other big takeaways from this pearl on transplant eligibility is refer them before their GFR drops to 20 because it does take anywhere from three to six months or so for that evaluation process to take place. We'll talk about that in a hot minute in pearl three, but as soon as their GFR hits less than 20, even if it's one day of AKI, they can be listed for a kidney transplant and start accruing time on that wait list. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouth-watering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With Factor, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code coriam50 at factormeals.com slash coriam50. Something else I've been curious about is what happens when a patient makes it to that transplant office. You know, it's kind of like a black box between the transplant referral and them actually getting the kidney. What actually goes into the whole transplant evaluation? Many programs, including ours, start with a multidisciplinary evaluation um, where the patient comes to the transplant center and in one big day gets a class meets with, gets blood drawn, meets with the surgeon, the nephrologist, the social worker, the transplant nurse coordinator, the transplant pharmacist, the transplant financial coordinator, um, all sorts of, of different members of the team, the transplant nutritionist, frailty testing, and all the rest, to get them started down their path towards to transplant. That multidisciplinary evaluation day is a huge expenditure of effort by the whole team. So we only bring in four people, but it's a six-hour event um, with multiple team members um, evaluating the patient. Oh my goodness. Sounds like a pretty hectic day. 
How, how can us PCPs or other specialists involved kind of help nudge that transplant process along? I can't tell you how many people come to us and have never had a colonoscopy. And it's not that it hasn't been brought up, but the patient has said, mm, I really don't want to do that. And then they get referred for transplant and then they hear from us, you have to do it. Well, actually, you don't have to do it, but we're not going to list you if you don't have all your cancer screening done. So that is a super helpful thing to do that will speed up the process. If, if your patient gets to the transplant referral and everything is up to date, pap, mammo, and colonoscopy, you will have just moved the process forward. Also, I remember the PCP notes being super helpful as a fellow, especially when I had to track down all that pre-transplant requirements and even more so at night. Wait a minute. Are, are you saying that someone actually does read my notes? <laughs> it sounds like someone does. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Not just wonderful. you. <laughs> no, it's, Not just it's a treasure. Yourself. It's like a, a beacon of light at like one in the morning when I got that page being like, hey, um, this person is coming in for a transplant and I'm having to, you know, like red eyes, look on the computer. It's all listed in the PCP note. Magical. Uh, so, so good. Yeah. Okay. So in addition to cancer screenings, what other testing do these patients have to go through? Most patients will get an echocardiogram at least. Um, almost all of our patients also get some kind of cardiac stress testing, usually a nuclear stress test. Um, if patients are smokers, we'll do PFTs. And then if they fall into the category of needing low-dose chest CT cancer screening, will do that as well. So you can both see that once they're referred, it's a pretty extensive process. A whole committee meets before someone gets added to like the list. And it's not just the transplant nephrologist. It's the financial counselor, the transplant surgeon, the social workers, the case managers. Everyone kind of needs to agree that like X patient is a good candidate. Every now and then a patient gets transplanted who maybe shouldn't have either because of like frailty reasons or psychosocial aspects of their case. Oh, interesting. Can you, uh, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, the, the patients I referred to are kind of the ones that don't or didn't have an adequate support system. They didn't, maybe didn't have the capacity to understand that like they can't miss these meds. They need to go to all their appointments. They need to have their blood drawn pretty frequently. You know, they just need to know what they're getting into. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I guess that certainly makes sense from a shared decision-making perspective. So just to wrap this section up, it, it sounds like outside of getting patients to the transplant office early, Getting them there with the full set of scopes, paps, and mammos is probably the best thing that we can do to nudge that transplant evaluation along. Marty, that would be incredible. And I mean that. That would be absolutely incredible. Now, the stress testing and PFTs, those happen on a more individualized basis. So I'd probably just let the transplant people determine just because they're less standardized tests. So, Tomas, once a patient's on this quote unquote list, what happens then? How does it work once they're listed? Yeah, that, that gets kind of complicated. Um, I mean, obviously, there's a lot more demand for kidneys and there are kidneys available, hence the list. No, Tomas, remember, I, I just want the world to know that if I ever have a GFR less than once, <laughs> even just for a day, I want everyone to know that I want to be listed. <laughs> Marty, we can, we can definitely figure something out. But if you did, you would probably be listed as inactive. Wait, what? What does that what does that mean? There's inactive and active listing? Yeah, you know, it's just adding more confusion to the whole picture, but I will let Dr. True explain that one. So we can list people inactive, which means they are on the list, their counter is going, the ticker is ticking, but we wouldn't they're not in a in the 
list where if a deceased donor came available, we would give it to that patient. So why would you do that? You don't want to transplant people too early. You transplant somebody feeling well at a GFR of 19, you're starting the clock on that transplant a little bit early. And the drugs that we give to protect the kidney from rejection are actually somewhat nephrotoxic. So you're speeding up the failure of their native kidneys. It's better to let somebody ride. Now, when's the ideal time to do a transplant? 14, 13, 12. As somebody's heading towards, I would expect them to start getting symptomatic and starting to go towards needing dialysis, that's when I'd love to do the transplant. Now, some people are symptomatic at 16, 18, and there's always a conversation, but we don't go right from evaluation, listing, evaluate the donor and do the transplant. We sometimes pause if the person is what we call too well for transplant. And sometimes you know, 20% of our list is on hold because they're too well for transplant. Okay. So I understand the reasoning to preserve the function of that transplanted kidney as long as possible. But gosh, I can imagine it's tough to hear, hey, we're going to wait until your GFR drops enough till you start feeling crummy. Yeah. What does that look like for these patients? Are they just following up like quarterly with a transplant nephrologist just waiting to be listed as active? Well, most patients are assigned a transplant coordinator that checks in regularly and kind of just instructs the patient to just reach out if anything changes in their health. At the end of the day, everyone wants these patients to be on the active list. Isn't that risky though, like waiting for someone to be symptomatic and crossing our fingers that they get a kidney in time? Shrey, that is a great point and a great question. Yeah, um, when, <laughs> when people get to this level of kidney dysfunction, it's usually a pretty slow progression. I mean, I'm sure you teach on rounds all the time. At least I hope you do. The indication uh, or the acute yes. indications for dialysis, you know, yes, the, yes, yes. the valve mnemonic, right? Well, in the outpatient setting, Following potassium and uremia will make probably 99% of the reasons that we pull the trigger to dialyze. And for two of those, we have augmenting medications that patients can just limp along on, and that's you know diuretics and potassium binders. And so we get to buy some time. Now, the patients um, who are starting to get subtle uremic symptoms, you know, like losing weight, sleeping uh, like 12 hours a day, that's the patient we start to consider dialysis on as well. It can be hard because a lot of those early signs of uremia just look like depression. So sometimes I'm trying to tease it out like, hey, are you depressed or are you kind of building up this compound X that kidneys can't filter out? And so my, my point is, is that the progression is usually slow. Uh, so that gives the transplant people a strategic advantage in activating people that are starting to show signs of symptomatic renal failure, but the patients who are still not quite on dialysis. So it sounds like in the outpatient setting, it's really going to be more subtle symptoms that we're going to be looking for to you know, start dialysis and really pull the trigger for the active waiting list. So say someone gets on the active list for transplant, then what happens? I mean, we could be talking like years in some cases. Years? Oh my gosh. Is, is the waiting time kind of similar for most people? Like get on the back of the line, wait till you get to the front? You would think it's pretty similar given that everyone has to pass this like kind of standardized screening criteria. But the answer is like so many things in medicine, they're just like kind of. Certain blood types, the presence of HLA antigens, where they live, where they get listed, they, those all weigh in as factors in how fast a patient can get a kidney and get off that transplant list. All right, let's break that down a bit more. Let's uh, first think about blood type. How much does that influence things? So the most common um, blood type uh, waiting for transplant is blood type O, as you would imagine. So if you have blood type O, you're probably going to wait longer 
Um, also, blood type B is overrepresented on the kidney deceased donor transplant waiting list, largely due to uh, patients with black race being more likely to have blood type B. So that is another blood type that waits a little bit longer um, for transplant. A and AB are, are less time. So if you happen to develop a lot of HLA antibodies to very common HLA antigens in the population, then it's going to be harder to find a kidney that matches for you. Oh, no doubt. It didn't really occur to me that transplant waiting times is really another factor in many health disparities that our, our patients of color face. I, I know. And that is something that we are becoming increasingly aware of. And definitely one of the reasons we don't take race into account when giving the SMA GFR, because this was previously leading to patients not being listed because they hadn't crossed that like 20 threshold. That's a great point. And also, I think on top of the many layers that I think we're already identifying, it's humbling to hear another layer like geography plays into it too. So if you're in the market for a deceased donor transplant, you want to live somewhere where there's not a lot of kidney disease. Because you can imagine if your community has a lot of kidney disease, when those patients, potential donors pass away, if they already have kidney disease, they will likely not be acceptable kidney donors. California's, it can be eight or nine years. And then in the Midwest, it may only be one or two. Um, so yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. Whoa, that is insane. One to two years in the Midwest compared to eight to nine years on the coast. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. no, it's nuts. And it's nuts to think that how much longer some people have to wait just based on where they live. And for this reason, I've personally encouraged my patients and have had a lot of patients who are listed at multiple sites. Um, and that's something that the primary care side can encourage and talk about too, because sometimes when I bring it up, patients look at me like they've never heard this before. <laughs> yeah, but I guess that also means that like these patients will need to travel pretty fast to that location in case a kidney is available for them. And I bet that also adds a, another layer yet again of health disparities. Mm, yeah. I mean, the, the disparity in access based on where you live was indefensible. And we are working on diminishing that. But if I see a patient who has an option to list at a center in a place where the list moves faster, I will absolutely support them going there. Less than 5% of the list, is my understanding, multiply lists. And the reason for that is that it costs money. You, If you're going to multiple list in Iowa, you have to be able to fly there and meet the team fly home again, go out periodically to update your workup. And then when they have a kidney and they call you, you have to be able to get on a plane and go straight there. And most people don't have that kind of excess cash. So multiple listing outside of your immediate area is probably the best way to expand your, your pool of uh, organ donors but the least accessible to people. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely appreciate this strategy, but it does kind of seem like it would benefit a select demographic. Are there any other strategies to getting a kidney faster? So a very straightforward way of expanding the pool of donors is signing up for, and you have to sign a consent for hepatitis C infected donor. This is a surgery we would never have done in the past with our poor therapies for hep C. But now that we have such wonderful therapies, hep C donors um, are not only a very good option for a hep C naive person, but really a very good way to expand the list of the pool of donors you have access to. The caveat is that you will most likely, although not 100%, get hepatitis C from the organ, 
we will pick it up almost immediately and we will begin treatment, three months of which, rarely six, will result in a sustained viral response and and that'll be that. Ah, another reason to be grateful for new hep C treatments. All right, anything else that we could do to help increase um, our patients' access to these kidney transplants? Yeah, I, I mean, the last thing that comes to mind is the KDPI, and, and that's a score that the kidney gets. It's a, it's a number of 0 to 100, where the higher the number, the worse. Um, it just means the kidney's more frail. It's, it's a complicated equation. It's like a re- reversed opposite the percentage system we had for like our MCAT. You know, you want to be in the 99th percentile, but you do not want your kidney to be in the 99th percentile. Whereas a standard, standard deceased donor kidney, would it be expected to last 12 to 14 years on average? A higher KDPI kidney, it may only be seven, eight, or nine years. But if you are coming to me and you're 75 years old, you don't need a kidney necessarily that's going to last you the next 40 years, whereas you do when you're 20. Um, So for certain patients who are at a higher risk for having a medical complication while waiting for a standard criteria, sort of standard KDPI kidney, those are the patients we would potentially approach for a high KDPI kidney. So my big takeaway from this pearl is once patients listed for a kidney transplant, how much time they have to wait depends on a number of things, their blood type, they have HLA antigens, but also where they live. The wait time can be anywhere from eight to nine years or less if they're in an area with less kidney demand or less kidney disease. And then the other thing I learned is that we often wait for that GFR to drop a bit more in the teens and for that patient to be symptomatic with those subtle uremic symptoms for active listing. The conversation so far has been all about transplants from a deceased donor, but one part we haven't covered is getting a kidney from a living donor that could be a match. So starting off with living donation, that is the best, hands down. Number one, the transplant can be scheduled, so it's not a surprise in the middle of the night. Number two, it's usually a healthier kidney because the person is living and well versus somebody who's died and the family's donated the organs. Number three, you can usually get it faster because there's no waiting on a list for a live donor kidney. You just have a donor and then we schedule the surgery when the time is right. So living donor transplant, always the best. I got to experience this firsthand, actually. One of my first patients in fellowship went through this exact scenario. He had four friends lined up to donate before we even started talking about dialysis. In North Carolina, his waiting time would have been like six years-ish. And that's six years he didn't have to dialyze. No doubt. That's amazing. So cutting down wait time is a major bonus, but are there other benefits to having a living donor? Overall, they last longer. So whereas a deceased donor, standard deceased donor kidney may last, the half-life we talk about, which is half of them are working, half of them aren't, might be around 12, 13 years. A living donor kidney could be 15, 16, maybe more. So they work better and last longer overall. I think the record I heard in fellowship was a patient lasted like 25 years with their living donor kidney. And that kidney was still going strong. Wow. I mean, if you think about it, surgery can be timed up to minimize the amount of time the kidney isn't receiving blood. You know, that's what we call cold ischemia time. So the number of hours that the kidney is out of the body on ice or being pumped with cold solution Um, the longer the cold ischemia time, um, the higher the risk that the kidney won't work right away or potentially 
um, won't work as well for as long. So if you can imagine if you have a living donor that's in the OR right next to you or um, the kidney is out of the body a lot less long, the cold ischemia time is, is nothing. Um, so those kidneys tend to work right away. See, that makes a ton of sense to me. We're seeing that a living kidney donor is for sure better, but can we talk about who actually qualifies to give up one of your beans? Definitely. And that is super important because in terms of who is eligible, patients need to be of consenting age above the age of 18, 21 in some hospitals. Um, they have to be considered stable from a medical and psychological perspective. Like from the medical side, it makes sense because we want healthy kidneys and we want patients who are going to do well with surgery because even though the risk is small, it's definitely still there. Yeah. I'm glad we're bringing this up. I feel like we focus a lot on the transplant recipient, but I'm glad we're stopping and thinking about things from the donor perspective. What what are the risks to the to transplant donor? There's been some data that shows that over the five or 10 years after donation, a patient's blood pressure might rise by about five or 10 millimeters of mercury. So if you have somebody who is sort of borderline high blood pressure after donation, they may be pushed into a, a realm where they're actually hypertensive now. Huh. I guess five to 10 millimeters of mercury, it might not be that clinically significant, but it makes sense, right? They're going to have a higher blood pressure. We literally took out one of their kidneys, right? And then sort of letting them know that now they do technically have chronic kidney disease, right? They have roughly 50% less GFR than they had. Although over time, the remaining kidney will um, hypertrophy slightly and take over some of that lost renal function from the kidney that got taken out, but they will permanently lose about 25 to 30% of kidney function following donation. That being said, I definitely try to clarify to any potential donor that the actual length and quality of life they will have um, and kind of going forward doesn't really vary that much, if at all. So in quoting risks to donors, when I first started in this field, we used to say somewhat tongue-in-cheek that donors live longer than the general population, not because donating a kidney makes you live longer, but because you're joining a select group of very healthy people and people with heart disease and diabetes and COPD and et cetera, et cetera, are not allowed to donate. Then some data came out showing that donors, if you compare them to, say, broad groups of uh, healthy adults without hypertension, that they had no different survival, no different kidney survival, no different overall survival. And then some data came out suggesting that a subgroup of young African-American donors who donated to family members actually did have a small but slightly increased risk of renal failure going forward. And this was largely, if you looked at a more granular level, people who then developed diabetes and hypertension uh, after donation. So we no longer quote to donors that donation won't impact their long-term health, but we say that there is a very slight increase in the risk of long-term kidney health, i.e. ending up on dialysis or needing a transplant. And we do our best to counsel people to avoid the conditions or to treat them immediately if they're found um, that would lead to any kidney damage, such as the common ones, hypertension, heavy NSAID use, smoking, things like that. Yeah, so I'm definitely familiar with some of the older literature about that, quote, protective effect, unquote, of being a kidney donor, which, as Dr. Pavakis points out, was really related to the selection bias and the donor identification of those patients. It's interesting to note that the newer literature questions some of that. But let's talk about the workup. 
I mean, how do we prepare folks who are considering donation? And most importantly, how do we prepare their children? <laughs> you know, this is, Thanks, this is, this is Marty's world and we just live in it, you know? <laughs> true, true. Okay, let's get into it. We order tons of labs looking for, you know, borderline diabetes, you know, other, other problems. We do screening, um, screening imaging, including chest x-ray, native kidney ultrasound. They get a CT scan of their abdomen and pelvis, looking at the number of vessels that they have to each kidney, because that's important. If there's multiple vessels, that can be a more complicated surgery for the donor and for the recipient. All right. I'm glad the transplant team does this extensive workup and really make sure the living donor isn't at risk for kidney failure in the future. But I can imagine that psychological aspect that you were talking about, Tomas, is equally as important. They see our social worker and psychologist. You know, it's it's very important on the living donor side to make sure um, people aren't feeling coerced into being a donor. As you can imagine, if you have a family member that needs a kidney transplant, there could be a lot of pressure within the family or within friends for people to be donors. Yeah, we really need to make sure that the donors don't feel exploited. And one of the ways that we can make sure that someone isn't caving to family, friend, or medical team pressure is that a completely separate team evaluates them. Uh, It's kind of their job to be the donor's advocate. And then they also see our social workers to make sure that they have adequate support, both for the medical recovery and for potentially the financial um, cost of being a donor. So what I'm hearing is that for all the prep work we do for folks who are about to get the kidney, there's just as much attention to the donor, which, listen, I appreciate personally. (laughs) And as a clinically, I've definitely been in the situation where my primary care patients have asked me about being a donor. And that idea that there might have been hidden costs, like lost work is something that I'm definitely in the future going to talk about head on. It's the only surgery we really do that has no medical benefit for the person having the surgery. But they do get psychological benefit from it. There's pretty good data that shows whether the, the transplant is successful or not, that most living donors don't regret the decision uh, to be a living donor and they very much um, are glad that they did it. Okay, so to summarize the big takeaways on this pearl on living kidney donation, It's really the best option in terms of minimizing waiting time, being able to schedule that surgery, having a longer life out of that donated kidney. And and for the donor, they essentially have to have a past medical history of basically nothing because they're going to be living with only one kidney um, and thinking about their long-term health. Yes, there is a slight increase in blood pressure, maybe 5 to 10 millimeters per mercury, but no increase in mortality in these very cherry-picked healthy individuals. And that's a wrap for today's episode. If you found this helpful, please share with your team and colleagues and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. If you want to add any of your own tips or share challenges, tweet us or leave a comment on our website page, Instagram or Facebook. And thank you to our peer reviewer, Dr. Surya Manivanan. Thank you to Dr. Spathia for the audio editing and to Dr. Raul Maheshwari for the accompanying graphics. As always, we love hearing feedback, so please email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Last but not least, opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions.